This is Red Pop Pod. A podcast from Red Hot Publications. Red Pop Pod. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Red Pub Pod. Good morning, good afternoon, or good night, whatever time of the day or year you're listening to this. We are here today to talk about a kind of homegrown tome, a book about the furniture industry in Western North Carolina, written by our own executive director of Red Hawk Publications, Mr. Richard Eller, who is here with us today. I got to say, this feels a little weird. Yeah, yeah. You know, have I don't sp- mind putting people on the spot, but don't don't put me on the spot, please. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're going to ask all kind of embarrassing questions yeah. today, so so get ready. Uh, also with us here is our, um, our acquisitions editor, Miss Patty Thompson, complete with all of her snark and beauty. (laughs) (laughs) Also with us is one of the uh, unsung heroes of Red Hawk Publications, uh, our lovely Melanie Zimmerman. Oh, thank uh, you. Who who, who made the book look good. Oh, she made the book look doggone good. A great big giant seven inch by 10 inch, 600 page tome. And you can read it because the letting's good and the the font's good. So Melanie, say hello to everybody out there. Hello, everybody. Out there. Out there. (laughs) You know, before we start, um, and to further embarrass Richard Eller, um, yesterday I had to kind of create a list of all of our authors from Red Hook Publications from going as far back as 2016. And on our list, and this is just authors alone, we have 112. Richard, do you realize you are actually one, two, three, four, you've got about 13 books with Red Hawk Publications. Oh, that sounds like an inside job if there ever was one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, going back to the very first one in 2016. Oh, yeah, the polio thing, yeah. You yeah. and Stephen King, you know, the, past, <laughs> the pasta makers. I'm glad I'm Stephen books. King somewhere, yeah, yeah, yeah. Wait till I come out with this girl that gets pig blood dro- dropped on her. Yeah, it's well, we were just talking a while ago about the only way to really make money in the publishing industry is to have a nice backlog. So, you know, we get Richard to write a book every third book that we publish. Yeah. is a Richard Eller book. We should be up to five or 600 books uh, before <laughs> this time next year. And, and, and just so that you guys know. We're also, selling the dozens. I, I am <laughs> categorizing the books by, by genre, and all of yours are history. Yeah, I got to get out of that. And all of them are North Carolina specific. Don't get out of it. You're doing something very specific and good for our state. And many of them are local to our county. So um, thank you very much for adding to the history uh, of our state and for our our area. Thank you very much. Yeah, well, um, it's it's kind of a it's kind of virgin territory. I tend to look at it by you know. There's not a lot of uh, folks willing to sit down and read old newspapers and figure out what it is and you know go through somebody's life until they can find a cohesive thread to it. And I just I don't know that stuff. I love that you know. That's and fun. you and you found some very interesting stories here in the uh, in the local area. The stories about the uh, the house that the um, that the history museum owns. Legends yeah. of Harper House. And I'm working yeah. right now on the second volume of that. And the guy is just he. I refer to him as the gift who keeps on giving because <laughs> when you think of, he's done something wild, he'll come up with something even wilder that I'll find out about. And that would be Colonel Thornton. Thornton, yeah, okay. yeah. 
Marcellus Eugene Thornton. Thornton. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm looking forward to that one. Yeah. But see, these are the kind of stories that people don't know about, and and when they know it, when they find out about them, they find out about these eccentric people who, you know, lived in the area a hundred years ago, two hundred years ago. Uh, that that's that's something that adds to the interest of the place they live, and sometimes makes them want to stay there because you know it's not just a boring old county; it's a it's a county rich with history. Yeah, and he's uh, his 175th birthday is this year. Next year will be the centennial of his death, and you know he left us with a couple of. We've talked about doing uh, critical reviews of some of his works, you know, getting them to see the light of day again. Yeah, I got his two boilerplate turn of the century novels. Yeah. And as I found out recently, he did a whole lot more that never got published. I don't know where all that stuff is. Mm, amazing. Mm. I'd love to find some of that stuff. And I know today we're here to talk about Well Crafted, the furniture, the history of furniture manufacturing in Western, Western North, North Carolina. Carolina. Yeah. But I do see that there's a little precedent. You actually wrote a bo- another book on furniture locally, which was the Hickory Furniture Mart, a landmark history. Yeah, Leroy Lale and I have had a pretty successful partnership on that because we started with his memoir, Win Win, and then for the 60th anniversary of the Furniture Mart, he wanted to do something on the the Mart itself and its transition, which shows up in the uh, well-crafted book. But what we decided to do was work together on that to create a story about just how he took that from a wholesale operation, which is where you came to twice a year when the furniture market was here, to a full-time 360-day-a-year retail operation where it's got 800,000 square feet of display space there. And, you know, other than Garrett D. Henshaw, I don't think anybody has been as great a supporter of this program as uh, Leroy Lale has. Oh, yeah. he. I think he understands the value of what the uniqueness of the area, you know, the local history, what it means to the area and what it can mean. Because he's one of those, you know, he's one of those guys that's made it happen. Yep. And we've also got uh, Leroy's little uh, memoir that we published, too, called Win-Win. And you can get Win-Win, the history of the Furniture Mart, and you can get a copy of Well Crafted if you go to redhawkpublications.com right now. And look on there. We take all major credit cards, and uh, you can have the books shipped directly to you right here from the plush welded studios of Red Pub Pod on Catawba Valley Community College campus. And he did the, or uh, I worked with him on the Boss Burris House, which is the house he owns. Oh, yes, that's on there too. That's a real nice book. Mm. So furniture's been on your brain, obviously, for a while. So what was it that made you want to write this particular book? I got, you know, as a, as a kid from the area, I got a lot of relatives who went through the furniture factory. And uh, my great-grandfather did, my grandmother did, uh, my parents had ancillary careers that was connected to it. And when I decided that I was, you know, that I wanted a car, they made me get a job at the furniture factory to either make money for me to buy gas for that car or show me how much I didn't want to be in the furniture factory for the rest of my life. Sounds so. kind of like a Roy Clark song there for a minute. I never picked cotton, but my mother <laughs> did and my brother did. And everybody did, yeah. Everybody worked in the furniture factory. Yeah. My brother lasted two hours in the furniture. No, no, I'm sorry. I have that wrong. It's twice as long. He lasted till noon that day. Um, and, and I understand why, why he didn't last any longer. But um, I learned some very important things in a 
a furniture factory. And so it gave me a basis. Then when I went to grad school, I did my thesis on the furniture industry for a very short period of time, 100 pages worth. And so I kind of had it there. And I always, uh, you know, I had titles and uh, things that I wanted to talk about in there. So when Leroy came to one of our book club uh, sessions, several of them, in uh, with the Historical Association, he and I got to talking about this. And he said, you know, High Point's overshadowed us and we should really do something about Western North Carolina. And I said, yeah, we should. And he said, you should write it. Yeah. And so, um, he, but, but the great thing about working with Leroy from the other books is he got me access to people, some of them who have passed on, but who knew things that I would never have gotten to, you know, in the door on either. So that was a great help in putting it together, about three years worth. And here's the other question I have for you. Um, Western North Carolina as it relates to your book, how is that defined? You know, whether you want to do it you know, west of 77 or are there specific areas that you are dealing with? Yeah, because um, I think it's Bill Stevens' book. He talks about furniture in two, two circles in North Carolina. you got your High Point Circle that includes Winston-Salem and Thomasville, and you got your Western Circle that's Hickory, Morganton, Lenore, and they both meet up at Statesville. So it's like an infinity symbol, uh, a, a figure eight on its side. And Statesville is like the center point there. So what I decided to do was take Statesville West and do everything there. Because in the old days when we were kids, they had the furniture market here. And you had your Hickory area and your High Point area. And I remember the Hickory area. But after about 85, all of that went to High Point. And so we became like last year's furniture pardon the pun, and we, we, we lost an identity. So I thought, well, it would be very good to be able to tell the story of the Western End, because the Eastern End gets a lot of representation, still does, still has a big furniture mark, market down there twice a year and all that. But the Western side, it's kind of all gone, and we lost the identity of who we were, even though we've got a really strong legacy that went really up to the 1990s before wholesale layoffs began and furniture, you know, in case goods anyway, left. But you could make the case, and, and, and Leroy does make this case, that furniture, I mean, uh, upholstery never really left. And so we were kind of making our name, and the return is coming to that. And the last couple chapters are about some of the factories, some of the companies that have weathered the storm, have either come back or started. Yeah, because there was a time down uh, Highway 321, like you're going north to Boone, there were peppered on both sides of the road all kinds of furniture outlets. Yeah, every spare it, building had it. Yeah, yeah, every every building had an outlet in it of some kind, and you could get some really, really nice furniture here in Hickory, North Carolina, for, for uh, a lot less money than what they were paying for it out east. But yeah. now it's it's a little more sparse. Yeah, you, you can still go up through there, and they're still up there, but they're not near like you're, you're talking about in their heyday. Right. Yeah. So I wanted to ask you a question, because... Um, when I was doing the book for you and I was reading it, it's really easy to read. It's like I have a friend or relative that's telling me their life story because you reached out to a, a lot of different families like the Sherrills. And um, I wanted to ask you about the African-American community that you brought up, Thomas Day and the other craftsmen that were in the area at that time. Um, how did you find out that information and, and how did you research their history? It's really tough because... The, I didn't want this to be just about the owners mm-hmm. and, and uh, predominantly, overwhelmingly, they're white males. And so you really need to get a, a much more 
multicultural look at it. Because when I was in working in at Kincaid's, um, there were a lot of women there, a lot of African American folks there, a lot of uh, different ethnicities of people. It, it just wasn't one, and so you really had to dig for that to where you could find it. And that I, I wanted the book to be spread out amongst everybody who participated, workers as well as owners, um, people who bought furniture, people who had retail outlets, people who just worked in one facet of the business or another. And so to dig down and find those made it a bit more challenging than it, you know, than it might have been just talking about them. But I, I wanted to make sure that everybody was included. Um, another thing that I wanted to ask you about is, well, I just wanted to mention um, I worked on a magazine where I had to interview people that worked in furniture factories and like Cheryl Furniture and Vanguard and all of those. Um, and it's remarkable to see that there are families that work in those furniture factories and have worked there for generations. Oh, yeah. So um, tell me what the importance of the furniture industry and the people that are here in this community and the families were to those furniture industries. They put a lot of food on the table because one of the interviews that I do that's kind of in this series with uh, about furniture is I, I got a I got a bonus interview. Um, I we'd put out I was doing these things with the, the uh, library to talk about furniture, what my research was, and you know people were coming and we were talking. And I said at one of them, I, I would love if there's anybody out there that wants to be interviewed. Well, there was a, a gentleman who got in contact with me that his mother was in a nursing home out in Mountain View, and she'd love to talk. So I went out and interviewed her. But the but the great thing was I, I got to talk to him too and he also worked in the furniture factory. And his grandfather had worked in the furniture factory as well. So it there there is this legacy. I mean it is, isn't just J.E. Broyhill, you know, um, giving the company to his son Paul and you know it going down th- through the owner side, it also goes down to the worker side. And from the very start of the furniture industry, fathers would vouch for their sons and daughters and say, yeah, you should hire them, and if you don't keep them in line, I will. And that would make them good, dependable workers, and you'd have a whole other generation. I mean, it's really no different than the cotton mills, mm-hmm. but it's the same mentality that whole towns, I mean, Lenore was just full of people who would go from Broyhill to Bernhardt for another nickel and then go over to Kincaid's for another dime and then go to Fairfield and, you know, that kind of thing. So it was a whole culture that was built out of that. Mm-hmm. They were pretty close because um, I worked in the furniture industry, too. I worked for Hickory Chair for a while. Oh, how long did you work there? About four years. Wow. And then Interco purchased them, and then I left and uh, came to school here. Corporate. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, but you can notice the family, they, they, the owners at the time made us feel like we were important to them. And you can see in some of these furniture factories now, like, I know you get the week off on July the 4th and you get the week off at Christmas and you get your, your little bonuses and things like that. Um, I had the opportunity to buy savings bonds and my daughter, Sally, still has her savings bond and she's 37. Oh, so, wow. <laughs> which is only $50, but it's okay. Yeah. Um, but it's important to see how, um, these companies treat their employees. And I saw in the book where there was a progression of where instead of there, you are the worker and you're going to do this, it became a more appreciative environment and um, 
Can you speak on that for just a little? Yeah, because I think you see in the 20s and 30s when uh, the corporate, when the industry is getting bigger in this area, and this is before corporatization, but the owners were trying to get as, squeeze as much out of their workers as they could, and they'd bring in efficiency experts, you know, the time motion guys. Mm-hmm. And I think it's... Um, it's Coffee's Furniture Company, um, and I forget the, the, the company, but F.H. Coffee's company, he brought them in, and the workers just sit down and said, we're not doing this. We're, we're not having you scrutinize us like that. Mm-hmm. And they pushed back successfully, and they got rid of the efficiency experts. But, you know, up through about the 60s when it was all locally owned, you had that attitude. Then when corporate comes in. Then when you have large companies who have nothing to do with furniture come in and take over these companies, they're indifferent to the workers. And they don't care if they, you know, if they live or die. Mm-hmm. And then when they're done with them, they just get rid of them. And I think if you look at the, the companies toward the end of the book that I talk about, they've gotten back to that. They value employees. And I won't name, you know, try to name any names. I want you to read the book. But mm-hmm. those companies have reignited furniture. Because when I started writing this back in the, the 90s when I was in grad school, um, I thought it was going to be the life and death of a furniture industry. It's a great Greek tragedy. Mm-hmm. And I don't treat corporate people particularly well in this book because, honestly, I think they're kind of the villains. I mean, they're the ones who, who did everything they could to either offshore it or kill it outright. Because I got one corporate executive I got a quote from that says, we're not closing these factories fast enough. And that is so incredibly callous to me that you would treat workers like that because they're the ones who who bear the brunt of this. Mm -hmm. And so I thought, well, this will, you know, I'll just tell the beginning, the glory days and the end of it. And luckily, I have waited these, what, 20-some years for you to begin to see uh, a rebirth. Now, it's not back to what it was, but it is better. One of you talked about the 5G technologies and stuff and— you talked about uh, bringing more elect, um, technical equipment in, technology into the plants and that kind of thing. Yeah. And one of the things was you mentioned microdynamics, and I worked there when it was Micro-D. I mm. used to video the furniture fabrics, and one of my customers was Wesley Hall. Oh, wow. So I, I love Wesley Hall. I do. Yeah. I like Wesley <laughs> Hall, too. And so can you tell me a little bit about how they have – they've got their youngest generation is in there now and how they've brought in new technology and things into their plant? I think when I first gave you this book, that they were not the last chapter. Mm-hmm. And when I found out about them, because there's just um, – there's five generations of – uh, the, the Deal family mm-hmm. who has worked in furniture. When I found out about them, that gave me real hope because if you talk about Marshall Deal and his sister M, they're in their late 20s, early 30s. I think they're early 30s mm-hmm. now. But they both are just so enthusiastic about furniture that it gives you hope that they're going to be there for another 30 years and the industry's going to be okay. Mm-hmm. Because the, the thing that, you know, when people get old, they say, well, it's dying, it ain't like it was, and all that sort of stuff. And you think it's going to be gone. But it ain't because you've got people like them who were just a delight to talk to, enthusiastic, uh, couldn't be more helpful. And it gives you faith that this thing's going to go on with the next generation, which will somehow ignite the next generation and the next generation. Do you think that um, because we've got a lot of upholstery manufacturers, a lot of, of, of those plants around here, do you think we'll ever bring case goods back through your research? Did you get any kind of feeling for that? Well, you can never say never, Mm -hmm. but given the market, I don't see how. 
I, yeah, I, it's hard, it's hard to to you know, and I'm terrible at predicting. Right. I you know, I was talking about something I predicted a while ago, and I, you know, I'll get it I'll get it wrong. But I, I I do think that American craftsmanship is being reappreciated now in a way that it wasn't 20 years ago. So maybe. Well, that is one of the reasons why I think upholstery is so difficult to offshore is because upholstery is an art. Yeah, it's something that you become so skilled in that it's very, very difficult to replicate it. Now, building a frame is one thing, but, you know, creating a piece of art is something else. And getting the fabric just right on that so it looks good, yeah. Mm-hmm. And where it will last and not come apart and, you know, be able to wear well, using material that will wear well to where you can have something that you can have for a longer period of time because... You guys know as well as I do, there's furniture around here that's 100 years old that are, people pass it down in their mm-hmm. families. You know, my grand, my daughter has got stuff that belonged to her grandmother, Hoke, from out at Claremont that, you know, Grandma Hoke was 99 when she died. She bought this stuff when she was a young bride. So you're looking at stuff that's 70 years old yeah. now. And it still looks as good and wears as well and as heavy as the Dickens. And that harkens back to the old, old days when you would hire somebody to build you a piece of furniture in your house so big that you couldn't get it out the door. So you'd have to bust it up if you are going to get rid of it. But those pieces in those old houses are still there right in the locations where they're built. And the case goods uh, parts of some of this stuff, you know, are carved things, finials, ball and claw, foot. Mm-hmm. I mean, you even had a chance to interview a person in the book whose company basically made finials and legs and things like that just for that kind of industry that you could take a basic case good frame of a sofa and add their legs or something like that. The Williams family. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. you're the one that gave me that because you had had Tony as a student. Yeah, I went to school with him. I went to school with Tony too, yeah. Yeah. But, you know, his story is the reason I wanted to start the book off that way. And we talked about, you kind of helped me see this as a, a front piece to the whole thing of a tremendous business they had. I mean, and, and it was family owned. Yeah, and he had passed it down to his son and daughter, yeah. and they were they were such artisans that they were freehand in some of these chair legs they were doing, and then uh, because of offshoring and the like, it all the rug got pulled out from under them, which is terrible. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, but what's really nice is I'm seeing more and more hand craftsmanship coming back. Especially in the woodworking. Yeah, I think people appreciate it. You know, uh, you pay a few extra bucks for mm-hmm. uh, something that's that that is going to be an heirloom to a family that you're going to give to your kids and they're going to give to their kids mm-hmm. and that kind of thing. Yeah. Well, see, that's the thing is being able to manufacture something that will last and something that obviously has uh, lastability and weight to it. When I say weight, I say that with quote in quotations that you know it's a. It's not may not be a one of a kind, but it's nice enough to where you won't see it in every house you go into. You won't see it on every floor. You know, you're not picking mm-hmm. it up at Value City or something like that. Not not saying that any of you guys who have furniture at Value City, there's anything wrong with it. But <laughs> well, but it, it does remind me of this section that happened in the '60s where they were making they're extruding. Uh, chair legs out of plastic. Oh yeah, with the idea that that was. You did an interview with a fellow about that. Didn't yeah, you? yeah, and 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 I mean, he won an award with it, and he's still part of the furniture industry here. But he was um, on the forefront of that. But the idea, you know, we we think of that as almost like a joke now that you'd have furniture made out of plastic. But they thought of it as a viable future in the early seventies. 
Of course, you know, in the early 70s, you know, well, right, anything you got. Right now, those plastic chairs that were on the Brady Bunch are down at Fantastic Finds for $450 each <laughs> from the 70s. So if you Fantastic have those, <laughs> keep them. <laughs> okay. I, point well taken. But, but I think, you know, it's it's some of it is the nostalgia of yeah. that, that once all us people who watch the Brady Bunch are gone, yeah. and, and they may not be worth as much. But the idea that you would just flood the market and get rid of wood, just to me, it's just like so incredibly crazy. Yeah. Well, you know, there was an amazing uh, thing took place in our culture in the late 1960s and early 70s where folks were getting rid of a lot of, you know, big, heavy dining room tables for those nice aluminum and formica uh mm-hmm tables and chairs that had the vinyl coverings on them and they weighed next to nothing. And we thought that was just the coolest thing. Just yeah. like we thought mm-hmm. TV dinners were the coolest thing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Homes have been scaled down also. Yeah. So there's more of a need for smaller scales dining room tables and, and chairs and high chairs. Right. Mm-hmm. So things have just changed over the years. Would you say that what's coming back in furniture in our region um, are they paying attention to some of these different trends? Smaller scale, um, it's still upscale, but slightly different. Well, you know, it's funny that that smaller scale thing had been going on since the 70s. They were trying to make plastic houses, I guess, to go with the plastic furniture in the 70s, and they were scaling down the size of things. But, you know, they've tried every crazy idea that you could think of. There was a guy that built a plant over in Hildebrand that was making furniture using concrete. Wow. And okay. was not using wood to go over top of it, but was just using this kind of, um, um, I guess you'd call it like a, a veneer over it that you could just wrap around it and make furniture with it. And he made a lot of money doing that, you know. For, so the, so anything and everything, wow. I think they, they tried once upon a time. Well, wouldn't you hate to come home and, like, fall down into a concrete sofa <laughs> after a long day of work? <laughs> oh, I'm so tired, honey. Conk. <laughs> I've dislocated my shoulder on my sofa. But you can get that concrete furniture for a very good price. And when I say good, I'm talking about cheap. And so uh, there was a real market out there. Because and there's always kind of been that market for your cheap what they used to call southern furniture, which is borax, uh, and then the middle price stuff and the higher price stuff. Southern companies and a lot of these in Western North Carolina banked on being able to sell nationally this cheap stuff to you know the the rest of the country. And you know there's that old joke in it about this woman who uh, found out that. She bought, she bought from a furniture store in Hickory, found out that the furniture was made in Hickory, and when they delivered it, she wouldn't accept it. Oh, no. You know, I'm not buying that stuff. And then there's because the other story local. of <laughs> the, the furniture store owner that said, I got your uh, furniture in a crate. Uh, which do I sell, the furniture or the crate? And the, the manufacturer wrote back and said, put both in the front window and buy more of whatever sells. No. Yeah. Okay, that's making me laugh. Um, you know, when my stepmom passed away... There was furniture from Century down in Sarasota, Florida. Mm -hmm. And my siblings, of course, didn't know anything about that. I knew it was heavy. I knew it was beautiful. I knew it was expensive. So my sister took it. I I had to encourage them to take it. It's like, no, no, no. This is like legit. This is real furniture. Not like what we grew up with. (laughs) Oh, yeah. You're talking about that Brady Bunch stuff. There's there's, um, some of this mid-century modern that's kind of come back in the last Mm time. I think it's gone out of style now, but it was there for a while. Uh, Kent Coffee that made it in Lenore. Some of that stuff is very Mm high-priced. You know, that modernistic stuff, you know, from... 
the space age when we were kids. Did you discover during your research when particle board became uh, 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 something that's used a lot in furniture? When did that take place? Starting in the 60s. The 60s was like this Wild West era where they were trying anything and everything, but that wood was too heavy and too um, tough to, you know, bend into what you wanted, and that's when you started plywood first came, and then uh, particle board, you know, as they were looking for cheaper ways. They were going to Germany and buying, like, they're paying millions of dollars for these things that would make particle board just to bring it back here. I mean, so so the, the, the modern particle board that we see now and MDF and stuff like that is still basically made the same, I wonder, as, as yeah. it was back then? It's all about the glue. It ain't about the wood. Yeah, about yeah. the glue. Yeah. 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 It puts it together. Because there were a lot of folks in our family who were excited when they would get a particle board piece. You know, they would get a new chest of drawers <laughs> made of particle board. Go, oh, this is modern. It's made out of oh this. Look here. Where you? And you're going like, oh, okay. A lot of emperor's new clothes on that one. Uh, yeah, exactly. Because <laughs> they don't like and then, you know, somebody leave a water glass oh, yeah. or something on it, and suddenly you've got something that's absorbed up that water. Mm-hmm. Worst thing you had to worry about was getting smacked by your mom for a white ring on your wooden furniture. This would buckle the surface yeah. of the particle board, and then you couldn't do anything about it. Mm-hmm. And veneer tops. I remember those. Yeah. The, it's wood on the sides, but the back is particle board. And, yeah, I mean, it was inexpensive, and it's reasonable. I still have some of that. And that go, that tradition goes back even further to, like, the 1920s, because before particle board, they were putting gum wood and putting veneer on top of it so that you wouldn't see it. That's mm-hmm. part of the borax tradition. So that whole idea of, of plywood and particle board and all that has an ancestor that's just even cheaper wood that would turn green. You couldn't you couldn't um, uh, varnish it to make it look right. So that's why you put veneer over it. Interesting. Um, you, you know, in t- just to be mindful of our time, and this clearly could be a two-parter, Mr. Eller, um, but I, I did want to point out that we've got plans for your book to be kind of throughout not just the Hickory area or Catawba County area, but throughout the state. If anyone is interested, there will be his initial book launch Monday evening, April 24th, April 24th, 6 p.m. at the Patrick Beaver Library in Hickory, North Carolina. And for all of you folks that are going to be at High Point, fear not, there will be a second one. Um, that will be May 25th, Thursday, at the Old Courthouse in downtown Newton. That will be at 5 p.m. And all of this is going to be on our uh, Facebook page, so so don't fear. You'll get all that information. But there's even more plans. Uh, we've been in touch with the Beanstalk Furniture Library in High Point. We anticipate, hopefully, that Richard will be at High Point in the fall. So fingers crossed on that one. Um, the Blandwood Museum, as part of the preservation in Greensboro, they're interested in working with you. There's going to be the North Carolina Museum of History's installation of furniture this summer, and they're looking forward for you speaking there as well. So lots of opportunities for people to hear in person. Mr. Eller telling much about this book. Well, sometime soon we're supposed to have the book available in the Historic Museum in Morganton. Yeah, Burke County Museum. The Burke County yeah. Museum. I'm driving some copies over there today. Contracted yeah. for some. So the gift shop there will have some for those of you listeners who might want to see it before you buy it. And I'm speaking on June 22nd at their morning coffee clutch thing that they do. Yeah, um, yeah you've got a few rotaries that are interested in you. Locally, of course, in North Carolina, your book is available in person at Tasteful Beans, our unofficial sponsor here at the Red Pub Pod. Yeah, that's right. 
but yeah. it's also, of course, in Shilling for Scott Owens. <laughs> <laughs> Another one of our uh, profitable genres, which yeah. is poetry. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, it ain't, it ain't just history. Again, another another undying supporter of this program is Scott Owens. He's just been great to to work with. Yeah, we love him. Yeah, yeah, and a prolific author for us. Too, you know. And and we will have some of the books with us when Richard appears, but we won't bring a lot because it weighs three pounds. <laughs> and if you don't want to read it, use it as a doorstop. When you put a dozen of them in a box. It makes an old man's back hurt. So seems like you're speaking from experience, Robert. <laughs> it's all those end notes, Robert. It's all the end notes. Well, actually, there's not as many end notes in there as we've as we've compared to some other history books. There's a there's a lot of text in this book. There's a lot of history, and the greatest thing about it is is you're going to be reading a book that has some of the most up to date interviews with some of the veterans, some of the people who have been involved in this for years. Uh, and, he's and we have some of those podcasts, and we will be uh, yes. putting them up. Yeah, we'll so, yeah, put them up as a series. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Were there any of those interviews that you found, you know, that you were excited about, or did you get any interesting stories from anybody that you interviewed? You know, the worst part of it is you interview somebody after the book's done, and, they, and you go, damn, I wish I'd put that in a book. You know, kind of thing. <laughs> um, I, I, and I'm looking for more. Anybody that wants to talk about furniture, I got, I got time. Because I think one of the reasons that it, it, it kind of works is that so many people have connection to the furniture industry in one way or another, either from the retail side or the design side or actually in manufacturing or any number of ways that may not be in the furniture industry mm-hmm. right now, like Melanie. You know, yeah, I mean, you, you did your time there. Mm-hmm. I did my time there. Mine was shorter than yours. Mm-hmm. But, we, you know, we've had some connection or our family members have. Mm-hmm. Everybody. I mean, you, you know, your, yeah. your dad hauled furniture. My dad drove that stuff all over the country, yeah. delivering it to and not only individuals who bought it, but delivering it to furniture com- companies and other carriers who would then carry it to other places. So. Yeah, and then your family owns some. So there's yeah, there's exactly. no there's no way to get around it. All. Yeah, it, it really, really has. has. Yeah. And, you know, for years when I had a store in downtown Hickory in the basement of the old Union Plaza building. The fourth floor of the Union Plaza building was a company of furniture designers. There was about four or five furniture designers who worked up there for a fellow named Rick Berry. And uh, it was Rick Berry Designs, and that's what they did all day, was set at like architectural design boards and designed furniture. They had these plotters that would print out the the whole designs and like big patterns like you would see for dresses, except it would be a pattern for a chair. Mm -hmm. And it would have all of the dimensions of the legs and the backs and this kind of thing. And those guys were quite uh, talented up there. And so it was all over the place. And you cannot describe to anybody that didn't live here in the 70s and 80s how clogged it got in April and October when the furniture worker mm-hmm. was here. I mean, everybody. Oh, it, it was great. <laughs> we had, we had, we had airplanes Unless you're trying to get somewhere. Oh, at the Hickory well, Airport? Yeah, but if you were doing business here, yeah. your store was packed. Your restaurant was packed. Yeah. Why, was, why did it leave from here to High Point? Well, that's a bit of a tough question to answer. And you'll need to read. <laughs> <laughs> it's you'll need page. to read a book about yeah, the French I, I got a whole market. chapter about that. Yeah. Oh, good. Okay, so, uh, so guess what, readers? Uh, listeners, we're just going to have to read that. It was, it was always a fight okay. between Hickory and High Point as to who could claim uh, uh, predominance. But needless to say, Hickory did not win. Was that the figure eight? 
What was what was the figure eight? The figure eight was the the like the the path of furniture companies around uh, North Carolina. We got our 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 wood originally from the Brushy Mountains. They got theirs from the Uwari Mountains. It spread much wider than that, but that's where the company started. So that's that's how they were listed, how they were okay. uh, configured. Did you get a chance to talk to anybody who owned any of the original land that that would sell the trees, would sell the wood? To the that that might be something for another book. No, but I I, I did find where they were. I, I did find their words, but uh, most of that original furniture or most of those original lands got depleted pretty quickly. So that okay. by the teens and twenties, they were looking further, you know, further afield for their, you know, what what of that land wasn't in ultimately protected by national forest. You know, Pisgah is is all that mm-hmm. land that that got taken away from. Them. So they had to go elsewhere. For it. So by the time you get to the 30s and 40s, it's all gone. Wow. You know, I mean, by the 70s, they're getting they're getting their their wood from Southeast Asia. Oh, wow. which makes it a little dicey if you think wow. about the times. Wow. Wow. <laughs> and and here today we've got furniture being made of wood that from trees that will grow very quickly, mm-hmm. alder woods and things like that, that you can literally look at the rings of the things and see that it only takes five years for a tree to get large enough to be able to cut lumber from it. And then you lift the furniture, and the furniture's very light. Yeah, that's some of that technology mm-hmm. um, that has gone into it. Because, you know, it takes 200 years to grow an oak tree large enough to send to a sawmill to get decent enough planks out of to be able to use. So mm-hmm. once you cut that 200-year-old tree down, it takes another 200 years for another one to get that size. But to have a piece of furniture out of that, mm. you know, that kind of never goes out of style, although in the 70s it, it did get a little wonky. But that's why people have those heirloom pieces, because that's the kind of wood that came that it came from. Exactly. All the mahogany and the hickory Mm-hmm. Furniture made out of hickory wood mm-hmm. that uh, I think it's like extinct around here now, isn't it? Or it's tough to, you can't get a hickory tree to grow. Yeah, that here. and um, what's the other one that they had a blight? Uh, the mimosa and uh, 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 what's the one that's got holes? Wormy chestnut. Yeah, yeah those, the chestnut trees. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can't get those anymore. Yes. So you better take what furniture you can get that was made of it because that's as close as you're going to get. Mm-hmm. So if you've got that kind of furniture in your home, you might have something that's worth more than whatever it whatever it may be. Yeah. And then think about the craftsmen, mm-hmm. the craftspeople mm-hmm. that have uh, put that together, people who may be long gone from the earth who made that armoire or made that sofa or made that table. And uh, took that craftsmanship seriously. Yeah. And yeah. hand-carved all of the legs and the finials and mm-hmm. all of that stuff, you know, and it's it, and you've been able to use it for years and years and years. That's just it. It's a lot more special than just you know sending something to the thrift store or sending something to the landfill. Yeah. I, I never knew how um, how furniture and upholstery is so inbred into this area until I had to get a piece reupholstered from my stepmom's home. There was a lovely chair that had been in our family for you know seventy years. I needed to get it reupholstered. And in my mind, oh, God, this is going to cost me three or 400 bucks and blah, blah, blah. I got a guy who did a phenomenal job for $100. And, I, I had and no you idea. got rid of that ugly 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The fabric that was on it. Yeah. You got it reupholstered into the original I did. color and I style. Did. I of, did. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Somebody went and put cheetah print on it, and I had a near fit. And I got it to go back to the crushed green velvet, which was what the traditional version of what it was back in the 50s. That's so. like we didn't know when we were kids and we're driving around in a 65 Chevrolet. You know, we're putting mag wheels on them and, and all this stuff, not realizing that, you know, we needed to not put that junk on those we're cars. Yeah. We're messing them up. Yeah. Of course, you're talking about Hickory Chair. I got to a tour of them long ago that was, um, and you were talking about the artisan aspect to upholsters, that when you went to their booth where they were, they were like a painter. Uh-huh. They had their stuff arranged in a certain way, yeah. and they worked in a way that you probably didn't want any scrutiny on, Mm-mm. but... The stuff they came out with was just exquisite. Mm-hmm. Dave was a he sprayed he was a sprayer for Hickory Chair. He did specialty stain work. Yeah. So there's chairs all over the world that Dave has done work on. And so. that's not a non. What Dave, is it? Dave non-skilled. is her husband. Oh, folks, yeah. Those of you Everybody should here. know he's my husband. <laughs> Dave Zimmerman with two ends at the end. And that's not a non-skilled position. It is not. But. Um, Unfortunately, furniture companies a lot of times regarded it as that mm-hmm. and paid accordingly, yeah. which was robbery. And being able to match colors, too, because he worked in the pump house, too, and mixed all the stains and all that stuff. So, you know, it's a one-of-a-kind stain. He's the one that would have—he mixed it. So, but, yeah, it's a lost art. It yeah. really is. People who can spray furniture, you know, spray stain and do the specialty stains, they are true artists. Yeah, they are. And and, and there's a lot of different aspects. You're talking about the—, the the, the fabric. It really is a very collaborative process that sends this one piece of furniture all the way through that factory and you finally get it mm-hmm. to where it is ready to go out and it, it took a lot of hands to make that work. Well, when you go to the cutters and they lay out the fabric, you've got to find out where your center point is and where it's going to match on the back of that sofa and then your, where your repeats are going to be. So you've got to know how to match all those up and it takes a special kind of someone who can do that and make sure your the nap of your fabric, like if you've got a velvet and you brush it back and forth, you want to make sure your velvet's running all in the same direction or, you know, that kind of thing. So Yeah, it's not only eye for it, but you care enough to make, make it, it right. And, and you take pride in it. When yeah. you, if you're an upholsterer like it's Cheryl Furniture or Vanguard or wherever, um, they take pride in what they've, what they've made. And then down at the Furniture Academy, um, Williams-Sonoma had their whole university. They created a university, so they sent employees who wanted to move up another level, if they wanted to do inside upholstery, they wanted to spring up or whatever, they sent them to the Furniture Academy so they could learn another skill. And that's because they wanted to learn that craftsmanship. We had people that were coming down from Wisconsin to take the Furniture Academy just so they could learn how to upholster so they could open their own shop. And if you want to learn how to upholster, Catawba Valley Community College does have the Furniture <laughs> Academy <laughs> where you can come down here. I think it's like a six-week program. It's uh, Well, you have to – there are different semesters, but you've got to take fundamentals of furniture first. Right. And then after you do that, you can take someone one, upholstery one. That kind of thing, spring up, that kind of thing. And it pays. Big time. Nowadays it pays. And I think that's the difference now in that they finally recognize if you're going to get people who care and who have those kind of eyes and have developed that experience, you're going to have to pay workers something more than minimum wage, a whole heck of a lot more than minimum wage. And the manufacturing facilities are a lot different than from when we were in there. They are clean. They're air-conditioned. 
everything. When we were there, it was the big fans in the wall and sawdust everywhere. And Mitchell Gold talks about when he when he <laughs> bought that factory and went to the manager and said, uh, "When are you going to turn the air conditioning on?" Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, the, and the guy's like, "What? <laughs> we don't have air conditioning." And to his credit, he went in and made sure that they had air conditioning. And he's he's one of those leaders that has said, "I'm not going to make as much money if I do this for with you know on behalf of my workers." Mm-hmm. But that's why you've got a nurse on staff, you've got a child care mm-hmm. center, you've got all these things. It's got a McCrary, cafeteria, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, cafeteria. yeah. Mm-hmm. McCrary Modern's got a uh, profit sharing program, you know, partial ownership of the company by the employees. There's all different ways in which they're doing things now so much better than they did in the 70s and 80s mm-hmm. when they didn't value workers like they should have. So those of you out there listening to this are thinking about a career choice uh, the Furniture Academy is right there for you, and there are people around here who will hire you right out of that academy. They'll hire you before you graduate from yeah, what I've been Yeah, they will told. hire you. <laughs> yes, I've heard that, too. Yeah. Because, again, upholstery is an art. And making this furniture is an art. I do put a bit of a commercial in the book about the way that we did the Furniture Academy in that it is a good deal if you're looking for a career choice. It's not what I thought of when I was in high school and I was you know, loading trucks that I don't want to be here. There is, a, there is a career to be had there that is good and lucrative and satisfying, and CBCC has been on the forefront of doing that. And paying very, very well. Yes. And yes. it is one of those jobs that harkens back to the era when, you know, people used to have maybe one, maybe two jobs in their entire careers. You would see people who would oh, yeah. work 40 years in one Same for company. one company. Yeah. And so, you know, if you're distressed by the gig economy of 2023, you know, where people are going to have 15 jobs and most of them are 1099 jobs where you're not really a vested, benefited employee, uh, looking into a career in furniture is a is a good thing. And you know, one of the things I think that they we we've learned in this new century about furniture is, in the old days, a an employee knew the owner of the factory, mm-hmm. and then it got very impersonal. You know, Interco you're mm-hmm. talking about. But now we've gotten back to that, to where um, when these owners of the factories come in, they know. I mean, when I went down to uh, Wesley Deal, uh, I, I met Eddie Deal, who's you know, who's mm-hmm. running the thing, you know, the father of Marshall and uh, M. And people know him, and people come up and talk to mm-hmm. him, and they have they have a real relationship, not just a "Hey, how you doing? Great job you doing? Got to go," you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> well, it's like with the um, Lexington Home Brands, Bill um, McBrayer. McBrayer. Yeah. Um, I went down there. I had to interview somebody down there and um, he would walk through the entire factory and knew every single person by their first name. And they all knew him and they were not afraid to walk up to him and say, hey, how you doing? He'd ask about their families. And so, you know, there's still some plants out there that have those people, that have those values. And they said, if they said, this sucks, you need to fix it, he'd get it fixed, Mm -hmm. you know, address the issue. And you know, for for anyone who owns a business out there, this is this is almost a lesson in how to maintain a healthy employee base. Is you know you treat them like an asset instead of a liability. And sometimes all it takes is knowing someone's name, asking about how they're doing, walking uh, the floor, walking the floor, showing up, letting us know you're still here. <laughs> yeah, when I did the Piedmont book, that's one of the things that all employees talked about. Tom Davis, who owned Piedmont, that he could do is he knew your name. Now people question how did he do that because he had you know over a thousand employees at one time, but he knew, and it made all the difference. They said that when they sold Piedmont, if he'd have started another airline, they'd have went with him that day. I mean, there's that much personal loyalty. 
And again, if you're interested in reading Well Crafted, the History of Furniture in Western North Carolina, it is available on HTTPS colon forward slash forward slash redhawkpublications.com. We ship books out every day, so if you do an order, we'll get it out that day that you do your order. Uh, I want to appreciate, tell everybody I appreciate how much uh, thankful I am that you're all here today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, thank you. Yeah, <laughs> uh, it's a we little weird, but thank you. We don't have to worry about like you know making somebody else mad when all the people who are usually here are here. Are here. So. And and it's a pretty book, so we do want to thank oh, Melody. It's a gorgeous, oh, amazing yeah, job absolutely. on it. It's it wasn't a gorgeous difficult. His writing inspired it. So, well, I, what I was always afraid of was the thing when I said, "Can I put these little icons at the front of the chapter?" Here's the M and M's. When I wanted to play designer, and you were very uh, gentle with me about, you know, yeah, we can sort of do that, and you know, you made it work. So, yeah. and really, that's one of the things that that you don't realize about something, a product like a book, is how many people. Uh, collaborate together to to create something like that. I mean, it's a it's a nice-looking product and a great book, but there's all kinds of collaboration goes on in this program to bring these products to market. We've brought products to market, oh, was it, you say, 112 different books, different titles? That's just, uh, yeah, it's like 130 different authors and 112 different uh, titles. And every one of them are different in different ways and and it's a collaboration among a lot of people sometimes it's an annoying collaboration because people can say i like this better than this and uh, but what what you wind up with is you wind up with a work of art like this book is and it is actually a work of art i mean it's big it's heavy it's hard to ship <laughs> but It'll hurt I, you if it hits you in the head. Yeah. But I would not have it any other way. Because it's exhaustive. It's, it's comprehensive. It's, and it's yep. uniquely our story that cannot be told anywhere else in the country. So we thank you, Richard. Easy My to pleasure. read. So yeah. thanks to Richard Eller, the writer, researcher, historian of Well Crafted, Melanie Zimmerman, the designer, the layout artist, the person who brings it to fruition, Uh her name's Patty, Patty. Patty Thompson, <laughs> who uh, who yeah. gets me all these gigs to come and talk about it. You know, and, I mean, she's talking to being stuck. I'm afraid to go down there. I'm a hickory. I'm a stranger in a strange land down there. But you don't, you don't mind. I don't know who they are, so I don't mind asking. Yeah, I mean, there you go. And I will say this is going to be up, of course, Red Pub Pod. It'll be on our YouTube as well as uploaded to all standard pod, podcast uh, services. Please make sure that you share, like, and subscribe to Red Pud Pop because that helps us make sure that we're on Catawba County's best listen to podcast coming yeah. this June. Yeah, yeah we're gunning for that. They're going to start voting again. Yeah, they are. Yeah. I just saw that the other day. Yeah. <laughs> we, need to, we need to beat that conservative one. Yeah, we we move, time, move so. up the list from second to first or whatever where we were. So for Richard, Melanie, and Patty, I'd like to thank you very much for listening for this uh, to this podcast today. Thanks for joining us. Please, as Patty said, share with other people. Uh, remind your friends that there's a, a bunch of uh, crazy people who like to get together and talk about books and sell books. So for everybody here at Red Hawk Publications on the wonderful campus of Catawba Valley Community College, I'm Robert Knipe, and I will talk to you later. Red Pub Pod. Red Pub Pod. Red Pub Pod. Red Pub Pod. See y'all later. Thanks for listening to Red Pub Pod. Red Pub Pod. Red Pub Pod. A podcast. Red Pub Pod. From Red Hawk Publications. Red Pub Pod. Red Pub Pod. Red Pub Pod.
Rip Pub Pod. Oh,